Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. As part of our Auschwitz Not Long Ago, Not Far Away exhibit, the Reagan Foundation has been hosting authors whose books cover the atrocities of the Holocaust, mainly told through survivors' eyes. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to our in-person event with Richard Hurwitz for a different look at the Holocaust, this time to focus on heroics rather than despair. For Richard's latest book, In the Garden of the Righteous, The Heroes Who Risked Their Lives to Save Jews During the Holocaust. It is an understatement to say this book is timely, wrote Kirkus Review. During this program, Richard sat down in conversation with Reagan Foundation and Institute President and CEO David Trulio to discuss In the Garden of the Righteous, which chronicles extraordinary acts at a time when the moral choices were stark, the threat immense, and the passive apathy of millions predominated. Deeply researched and astonishingly moving, it focuses on 10 remarkable stories of those who provided hiding places, participated in underground networks, refused to betray their neighbors, and secured safe passage. They repeatedly defied authorities and risked their lives, their livelihoods, and their families to save the helpless and the persecuted. Let's listen. So long before I accepted this role and uh, came on board, I actually saw Richard talk about his book in Washington, D.C. This would have been in the January, February time frame, which was fascinating. Uh, so I, I feel like in addition to, to reading the book, I got to, to hear some of the, the why. But Richard, why did you write this book? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, Dave, thanks for having me. Thank you all for, for turning out tonight. And it's, it's a real honor to be here. I'm a huge fan of Ronald Reagan and everything that he stood for. So I, I uh, had a wonderful time today. Um, and obviously, we can talk a little bit about some of he. This was an issue that was of interest to him as well. Um, I wrote, I mean, the origin of the book actually goes back to when I was in college. Um, and I was studying history, as you mentioned. And I went down to the, um, to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, which had, been, which had just opened. Um, Actually, had been the, the the cornerstone was was laid by Reagan uh, in '88, but they finished construction and it opened when Clinton was president. And I went down, um, and my family's been in this country for for a long time, so we we weren't um, uh, affected directly by the by the Holocaust. But like a lot of American Jews and a lot of Americans in general, we went down, and I remember going through the exhibit, and it was very similar actually to the exhibit you have here, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend. This is the Auschwitz Not Long Ago, uh, Not Far Away exhibit, special exhibit here through January 28th. Very, very, very moving, powerful, traumatic, upsetting, important to see. Uh, it was in New York where I'm, I flew in from this morning for a while and then it's moved here. And it, it, it's very, very, um, uh, again, powerful, tough. and. Um, I remember, and, and it's interesting because as I've talked with a lot of audiences about the book, both Jewish and non-Jewish, everybody who goes to that museum seems to have the same reaction that I did, which is, you know, the, there's this pile of shoes. And there's a similar, actually, part of the exhibit here with that. Yeah, and the red 
sh shoe of a, of a young, young woman. Yeah, and when you, the, the, in, in Washington, it's a pile of shoes, and you see within it, you know, children's sizes, right? Mm -hmm. And you realize one and a half million of the six million Jews that were murdered were children. And a lot of, I was talking to a couple people here today, actually, people have found it difficult to go through the exhibit, which, which we can talk about, but I, I, I did at the time. And I remember coming out into a room, and there was an exhibit that was dedicated to those people who tried to help. And, um, and I gravitated to, um, there's this picture. Um, uh, I was in a bookstore today, actually, and somebody asked me who this was. So I guess there's something magical about this photo of this young guy with a pipe. And he was a, a, a student at the, um, I, I learned his story there. They had a little exhibit. He was part of something called the White Rose. And um, they were idealistic um, students at the University of Munich. Most of them were medical students. Um, the two most famous were Hans Scholl, who founded the group, and his younger sister, who was a college student, Sophie Scholl. And what they did was they tried to foment a, uh, a uprising against Hitler and to rally students. And so they started, uh, they called themselves the White Rose. It was clandestine. They started writing leaflets and um, got like a mimeograph machine, if anybody remembers those. And, and, um, and he actually, in the second leaflet, uh, the White Rose, which the second leaflet was written by, by this guy, Alexander Schmorell, was one of the first documents to actually document the Holocaust. And he said, um, you know, we've, we've, um, we've murdered, uh, the, Germany has murdered 300,000 Jews in the most bestial way. And, and they were very erudite. They quoted, you know, Goethe and, and Lao Tzu and the uh, um, Thucydides. And they circulated all over. Um, and, and then the, the boys were all sent to the front in Russia, came back even more uh, determined that, that Germany was on the wrong course. Um, they were liberal Democrats, actually. They were both religious and they were liberal dem Democrats. And their professor, who was part of the White Rose, was a very unusual guy who had those values. And so this went on for about a year. And they actually got leaflets to other universities. It was as far as Vienna. And then one day, the, two, the siblings were at the University of Munich. And they were distributing leaflets between classes. And they got to the top of an atrium. And Sophie Scholl uh, took the last remaining leaflets that she had in her pocketbook and like, kind of threw them down, and they floated down. And the maintenance man, who was an ardent Nazi, locked the door, called the Gestapo. They were there within minutes, and they were arrested. And then they rounded up the rest of them. Hitler sent his favorite judge down from uh, Berlin. Within days, they were executed. And, uh, and the case was known um, outside of Germany at the time. Thomas Mann broadcast about it from exile in the United States. Um, later, uh, the leaflets were actually parachuted down by the Allies into Germany. Um, and uh, Sophie Scholl said something interesting during the trial. Um, she said, um, the thing is that everybody in Germany thinks the way we do. They're just afraid to say it. But of course, this was exactly not the case. And, uh, and right now in Germany, there are more schools, I think, named for the Scholls than anybody else. And um, Hitler had a secretary who wrote her memoirs. And she said in it, she was walking down the street, and she saw something about Sophie Scholl, and she saw that they had been born in the same year. So she was, at the time, like you know, maybe 20. And she said, you know, I had no excuse for what I did. It didn't matter how young I was. We all went down this path of evil. And, um, and so I, anyway, I, I thought about writing my thesis about these, this story, because it was so profoundly impactful on me at the time, but I didn't know German. So I ended up writing about Alexander the Great. But it stayed with me, and, um, and then, I wrote for the New York Times an article 
on the 75th anniversary of the execution of the White Rose. And it went completely viral. Um, it was, became one of the most shared stories in the New York Times. It was shared all over the internet. Um, and people were drawing a connection at the time between the, the kids who were, uh, the Parkland shooting had just happened, so this kind of idea of student activism. And I noticed something, because when you write an article, you know, um, for a publication like the Times, it gets seen by so many people that you, you, know, you look at like the comments and everything, and there was not one negative, this is a story also about the Nazis, right? And there was not one anti-Semitic, not one Nazi, not one hateful comment anywhere online. And I, I, I looked hard, not one, which is remarkable, because I've written about like Cleopatra's monetary policy and gotten like, you know, like anti-Semitic stuff like that. Right. So there was something about this story that was kind of really appealing, I think, to, to um, you know, uh, kind desire of a universal people had. appeal. Yeah, and so then I started writing up other stories because I'd always been interested in rescue, and so I wrote for the LA a couple for the LA Times. One of them went to um, about the King of Morocco went to number two on Reddit, um, which my kids had to explain to me what that meant. The only thing that beat me was a girl going to the prom with a cardboard cutout of Danny DeVito. <laughs> but, but that the, if it was on Reddit, it was read by you know tens of millions of people, and yeah. so I wrote seven of them. And again, every time I had the same reaction. So I decided to turn it into this book because rescue is a very undercovered area of the Holocaust. Um, and I also feel that these stories are amongst the most inspirational stories in world history. Well, if I may on that point, in your book you say, it's also a historical injustice if the names of Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Goering remain more well known than those of Wallenberg and Schindler and by extension, the other rescuers. Yeah. So what does it mean to be in the Garden of the Righteous? Tell us what the title is about. Sure, so it's an actual real place, um, and it is, um, it is at Yad Vashem, um, which is the uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in, um, in Jerusalem. So it's, it's the Israeli version of the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Um, and it, um, it's a different experience, actually, because it comes out into sort of it's meant to generate more hope, I think, than, than um, but, but it, um, from the beginning, um, it, it's one of its core missions from when it was set up in the 50s was to recognize righteous Gentiles, so non-Jews who had um, risked their lives to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. And, and, and it's, it's a strict set of filters. Yeah, so they're right? very, very high, high stringent criteria in that I think are personally, I think are too high, but, um, but they are high. And so you have to have been, you can't be Jewish to have saved someone who's Jewish. You have to have eyewitness testimony. You cannot have received anything for doing it. You have to have risked your life or your livelihood. Um, and there are 27,000 people who have been given the title of what's called righteous among the nations. And it's the highest honor you can get in Israel. You get a medal that with the famous quote, he who saves one life saves the world. And, um, and the tradition is that they plant a tree uh, in, in, in your honor. And so that's the garden of the righteous. And I've, I've had the privilege of being yes. there. In fact, I, I texted Richard when I was there yes. for the photo, but yeah, it's, um, it's very powerful, very powerful. And it's now like a forest, right? right. Um, although I, I do want to contextualize that 27,000 people yes. sounds like a lot of people, but um, there were 500 million people in Europe at the time. So one example I give so I usually use Madison Square Garden, but I, I, I'm going to use crypt, crypto where the Lakers play. Uh, crypto Arena. Yeah, yeah, the forum, right? 
same if you filled that up with a representative sample of Europeans at the time, you would have one person who has the title of righteous among the nations. Uh, so it's one out of 20,000. Even if you multiply, you say, okay, there was failed rescue, there's rescue we never knew about, there were things that didn't hit that criterion but which were still important. Um, like Primo Levi wrote about a man when he was interned named Lorenzo, who was a laborer who brought him soup every day. And he wrote in, in his book, Survival in Auschwitz, which is a classic, he said, this man kept me alive because I knew somebody out there still knew I was a person. That guy does not have, get the, the medal. But so let's say you multiply by 100, it's still a vanishingly small number right. of people that, that, that chose to do anything. So we're gonna get into why some of these people did that, this, these remarkable acts in a moment. But uh, before we do, who was the first righteous among the nations? Yeah. Um, so um, the story is told that it would be um, the Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and, and why? So the reason why um, is that she, she saved Moses. And um, you know, when you think about the story in Exodus, um, so he, uh, her, her father, the Pharaoh, had, had decreed that you know, anybody who, that all um, Jewish male children, Hebrew male children, would be put to death. And um, so, you know, she finds, they put Moses in the, everyone knows the story, and she finds. Well, Moses, I wouldn't yeah. assume that. Okay. This well, audience, sure, but yeah, with so a big audience assume, okay. online. So, so they're, they're, they, you know, they put Moses in a, in a basket, and he floats down the Nile, and she finds, she's out bathing with, with her maidens, which is important, because she picks up the, you know, picks him up. And it's important that she was there with um, the, the, these uh, other women, because she did this publicly. Right, so she did publicly defied her, the edict, and then she proceeded to raise Moses in the in the palace. And so, um, you know, she saved his life, and then he went on to become, you know, the greatest prophet in in Judaism, and and you know the the person who led the Jews out of the Hebrews out of slavery. And so, there's a lot of commentary about her. Her name is given in Chronicles as Bitya, actually, so she has a name. And um, there's a tradition that that she's one of I think like nine people who went to paradise in her lifetime. But one of the really interesting things that, that they, they talk about in the Talmud is that Moses had a lot of names, right, including the name that he was given by his parents. And the name Moses is Egyptian. Um, my, my son studies Egyptology, so I know a little bit to be dangerous, but like Tutmosis, the pharaoh, it's, it's an Egyptian name. And so it was the name that the pharaoh's daughter gave to him. And they say that God himself refers to um, refers to Moses um, by the name that the Pharaoh's daughter gave him as a uh, tribute uh, to, to her for what she did, that this was really evidence of kind of, you know, the best in, in, in humans and in creation. And I think also it's important that this idea of gratitude for that is, is really important, and it's the reason why the, the devote, the, uh, when they, when they um, dedicated the Garden of the Righteous, Golda Meir gave a speech and she said that the rescuers were um, drops of love in an ocean of poison. And she said the Jewish people will forever and always remember their actions. And so this idea of, of gratitude, which is sort of like a fundamental Judeo-Christian ethic, is part of, I mean, that to me is a big part of this book because um, it is really important, um, I think not just for for people who are survivors, or even for Jews, but just for anybody who 
shares those values, you know, the kind of humanist values to show gratitude to these people for what they did for their example and to try to learn from them. So I think that's really the lesson of, of the, the kind of teachings are about, about the Pharaoh's daughter. And that's why I sort of start the book with the, with the, with the quote from, uh, from, um, from Exodus and, uh, and talk a little bit about it. Well, and tragically, especially after October 7th, the, the lessons of this book are even more relevant and compelling than they ever have been. And uh, we'll get into that. Now, early in the book, you say, by studying what motivated the rescuers, we can perhaps distill the values and manners we wish to cherish and encourage. So with that, let's, let's go into one of the 10 stories. There are 10 magnificent stories. We will not cover them all tonight. You have to buy the book, which, we, which you can do uh, just outside these doors or on, on the website. Um, but but let's, let's maybe a little bit of audience participation. Let, let's, um, let's see a show of hands. Who here either likes or has read Curious George to their kids? Okay, so a lot of hands about Curious George. All right, now tell us what is do the what rest is, of the people not like Curious George? Or they maybe just, they don't uh, know, they don't, don't care, don't, they don't do audience participation. Yeah, got it. All right. Uh, so what is Curious George? What in the world does it have to do with the Holocaust and this book? Sure. Um, so Curious George <laughs> and the people who... Uh, you who, probably have not had that question in any I of your book I haven't, but I, did, I do start the book with the story of Curious George. So, so, so Curious George is, is an, uh, uh, was a cultural... Um, uh, uh, rescue of the Holocaust and the people who uh, who um, wrote Curious George, um, the Rays, um, were German Jews, and they were rescued by um, a Portuguese diplomat. And his name was Aristides de Souza Mendes, um, and he. How many people have heard of him? Just curious if I can do an audience. And it's, and it's perfectly fine to well, not have heard of him. No, no, no. There's, there's no it's, shame yeah. in that. I, no, I did not no. know him before yeah. I read the book. The reason so I, I asked that. Sousa Mendes is, is his name. Is that, um, so we had two people, I think? Two yeah. people? Three people? Yeah. How many? Okay. Raise your hand again. Three, okay. Three people, well, four people. Okay. okay, so we're about to change that, which is great. So, um, so, so Sousa Mendes was a Portuguese diplomat. Um, and he, um, he was, he's actually been called by the Christian Science Monitor in their review um, of my book, the breakout star of the book. So, so um, when people ask me which is your favorite, I, some, I, I it's like who is your favorite child? You, like I, you don't have one; they're all the same. But, but he, I, he's there's something very special about his his story. But he was a Portuguese uh, diplomat. Um, he was born actually still under the monarchy. He was a twin, and he was an aristocrat. And um, he and his brother, twin brother, went into the foreign service. And he was posted all over. Um, he actually had um, 14 children in many different countries, including he was posted here in California at Berkeley. So he had two sons that were American citizens. And in the home in Portugal, they would fly the flags of all the places that, that he was at. And so he had an American flag there. And um, uh, he was one of these. Um, so his brother was sort of the you know, high achieving um, uh, diplomat who became foreign minister at one point. And Sousa Mendes was a very talented diplomat, but he was a different kind of uh, diplomat. He was an amazing host. So everywhere he went all over the world, he was beloved. And his home would be filled with like, all kinds of interesting people. And like Albert Einstein taught his children how to, how to how, like math. And, 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 he had the, he, and when, when he was um, in Europe, he had this special um, kind of bus vehicle created for his 14 children so they could drive all over and see, see different, different things. And the, Daughter was a flower girl in a royal wedding in Paris. And so he was that kind of diplomat. Um, and a devout Catholic, too. He was a devout Catholic. Um, and um, 
with some Jewish ancestry? Maybe? He believed he was a converso, which is um, probably true because, first of all, about a third of the Portuguese population has some Jewish ancestry, and based on his name and where he's from, right. probably many generations ago. But he was also an aristocrat. He was a, on his mother's side. He was a descendant of um, the, the Duke of Avranches, and so this was, and, and which this was the reason why Salazar, who became the dictator of Portugal and kind of grew up near the Sousa Mendes twins, resented him quite a bit because he was from sort of not as fancy a background. So in any event, Sousa Mendes um, ended up um, in June of 1940 as the consul general in, um, in Bordeaux. And, um, Which was probably not a very prestigious post. It was a perfectly adequate one. Yes, it, it was, wasn't. I mean, his brother at that time was ambassador to Poland. Um, yeah, it was a, nothing wrong with it. But it no, was, it was it, middling, yeah. and it was done. You know, it was really for again. His job was to entertain, and also one of the main jobs of a consul general is visas. And visas became very, very important at this moment. By, by not, I mean, sort of by because of what was going on in Europe. Dorothy Thompson, the um, they quoted her actually in the Ken Burns documentary. She said basically that we live in a time when a piece of paper decides whether someone lives or dies, right? So Susan Mendez is, uh, is the um, uh, uh, consul general in Bordeaux. And um, June of 1940 happens, and the Nazis invade. Many people had actually fled to France because they felt that the idea that France would be occupied was unthinkable. So you had all kinds of artists and writers and dissidents who had fled from Germany to the south of France, um, Jews and non-Jews. And um, in any event, the Paris falls June of 1940, and you have probably the worst traffic jam literally in history. Uh, five million people were exiting. And the main place that they were trying to get to was the south, and the main place of exit was to get to Spain and if you could get over the Pyrenees to Spain, you could get to Portugal and Lisbon. And if you've all seen the movie Casablanca, everyone's trying to get to Lisbon. And right, they say at the beginning, you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. Well, so all of these people descend on Bordeaux, um, including, by the way, the government. It was very dramatic. The government of France uh, um, fled there, just as they had in World War I and the Franco-Prussian War. Um, De Gaulle comes, is, is there. Um, the Vichy government, the future government, within a few weeks, is there. Um, and literally millions of refugees. Um, to go back to Curious George, um, so you had um, Hans Reibach um, had, had been, it was a German art student. He had moved to Brazil and uh, changed his name to Ray because it was easier to pronounce in Portuguese. Randomly meets a girl he knew from back home named Marguerite um, in Brazil because <laughs> why not? Like they just. He meets this German Jewish girl from the town he's from. They both happen to be in the Amazon in the 1920s and whatever. And, uh, and they, they fall in love. And then they go back to Paris and become artists. And he, they sold a children's book. And, um, and then there was this little monkey um, who was in it. It was sort of a minor character. And um, the, the pu French publisher said, you know, that, like you should do a book about that, that monkey whose name was Fifi. So they do this thing, The Adventures of Fifi. And, uh, and then the, the, um, they get an advance, and then the Nazis are coming. And they literally took the advance and got makeshift bicycles. And they were part of this exodus down. And they uh, found themselves in Bordeaux with all these other people. And what happened was Susan Mendez is there. And there had been, just to back up, um, Salazar, who was the dictator of Portugal, was a very complicated kind of Machiavellian guy. Wasn't quite a fascist, hated the communists. Um, his main foreign policy goal was to keep Spain out of the war. 
um, and because he wanted to keep Spain out of the war, because he wanted to keep Portugal out of the war. So it was neutrality at all costs. Franco was an ally of Hitler and Mussolini. And so Salazar knew that Franco, in the wake of the Spanish Civil War, did not want refugees coming into Spain. So he had issued something called Circular 14 earlier in 19, it actually ended in 19, the earlier 1940. And it said, basically, um, nobody is allowed in without approval from Lisbon into Portugal, except for, and there were a few exceptions, and it was uh, like French, Belgians if they were famous, British, and Americans. And then they were very clear, nobody without a passport, a citizenship, i.e. Jews, and no Jews. So you could be French, but if you were Jewish, you couldn't get in. Right, yeah, um, and uh, well, it's interesting because at that time French Jews weren't really fleeing um, right. the south. Okay, but it. yeah, so this came out, and Sousa Mendes had actually, even before, violated it a couple of times. Once for a non-Jewish professor who was fleeing, and another for uh, a, a, um, a, some, a Jewish couple. Um, and he just, he, it was very hard for him because he saw the these people were desperate and he wanted to help them. And so he had been reprimanded. And then you have this terrible scene in June of 1940 and um, he, people are going from consulate to consulate to consulate to try to get a visa. And it was very complicated. You needed an exit visa, you needed a transit visa. Once, you know, people would get all three and then uh, visas you needed, one would expire. It was a nightmare. And in the end, Everyone basically slammed the door shut, including the United States of America. We, we were terrible. Um, the rumor went around that maybe the Portuguese uh, consulate was sympathetic. And so he, people started assembling outside the, 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 um, the, the, the consulate. And he went outside, and he saw this group. And he, he saw um, a young rabbi with a very large family. And he had sent, I told you, I said before he had 14 children. He'd sent them all back except his two oldest. So he lived in this consulate that was had a lot of room, and he said to the rabbi, he said, you, you know, I have a big family too, don't sleep on the street, come spend the night. And so the rabbis came in with the children and they spent the night, they had this long conversation, he talked about being, a, being potentially a converso, they talked about their faith, and then he said to him, to the rabbi, look, I'd like to help you, you know, I think I can give you and your family visas. And the rabbi said to him, well, I can't do that, I can't accept these visas for myself and my family, what about all my other fellow Jews out on the street? And he went back out. And Sousa Mendes like, was thunderstruck, and he took to his bed. Uh, had, like, he wrote to his brother. He basically said, I, I had a nervous breakdown. And then he got up, and he made this very dramatic pronouncement. And he said, um, first he said to his family, he said, I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God. And then he made the announcement. He said, I'm going to give every single person a visa who wants one, regardless of your religion or who you are. And so then over the course of the next three weeks, he, because there was a clock ticking between when the French would capitulate to the Germans, um, he gave um, thousands of visas out to many people. So um, among the people he saved were the people who wrote Curious George, um, Salvador Dali, uh, the Habsburg family. Hitler hated the Habsburgs. Um, there was a hit squad running after them, the Rothschilds. Um, uh, Paul Rosenberg, who was Picasso and Matisse's dealer. But he also saved just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very poor refugees, many, most of them Jewish. And um, then there ended up being this sort of cat and mouse game because <laughs> a woman came to the, um, British woman came to the consulate 
And, in an, and they asked her to wait. She was there for a regular tourist visa to Lisbon. And in an act of supreme pettiness, she went and complained to her consulate, which then called Lisbon to say that the Portuguese consulate made this woman wait. They just said to her, could you wait like a few minutes? We, got a little, we have a problem going on here. We have a lot of refugees. So then they sent people, you know, including the ambassador in Spain, to try to catch Susan Mendez. And he then started going all over the south of France because he had a couple of other areas that were under his jurisdiction. He personally took people across the border. And then um, the, the door slammed shut when, the, when they capitulated and Vichy came into power. And, and he signed yeah. to the point where his hand literally Yeah, and you hurt. can actually see, like I've seen, you know, in the beginning he signs Aristides de Susan Mendez, and by the end he's just writing Mendez. Like, he, yeah, he was... It was, he saved, they, they think, he conservatively saved 10,000 and as many as 30,000 people. So I asked everybody if you'd heard of him. He is the single, he's the largest rescue by a single individual in the entire Holocaust. And it happened over three weeks. And for this, he was summoned back to Lisbon. He was put up on disciplinary hearings. He was... They found that he should be reprimanded. Salazar personally said he should be fired, stripped him of his pension. Um, he went through his entire life savings. Later in the war, and then in the early days of the Cold War, Portugal made a very big deal about the fact that they had saved refugees. So they took credit for what he did, um, which infuriated him, obviously. He spent the rest of his years appealing the decision. His wife died prematurely. He had a stroke. He died prematurely. I actually visited the street in Lisbon where the, he was literally died in a Franciscan hospital in Franciscan robes with like no clothes. Like, like he, he, he was ruined professionally and financially. Yes, and reputationally, and he was shunned. His children had to leave the country. They couldn't get jobs. Two of his children fought in the United States Army during World War II. Um, so he was ruined. Um, and he was not, it was not until actually under, in 1988, under Reagan, the first place to actually, so, so sorry, he was given the Yad Vashem medal in the 60s. The United States was the first major country to recognize him by a, a resolution in Congress. And it wasn't until the 90s that he was recognized in Portugal where he's now a national hero, rightfully. Um, so, uh, you know, an amazing story. And again, you know, one of the things that, is really powerful to me since I started writing these stories and since the book came out is inevitably there will be people not only that will write to me and say, oh, I'm alive today because of such and such person saved my grandfather, but inevitably people I know will tell me that. Or I have a friend I just found out he didn't even realize was saved by Susan Mendes until he read the book. And so that's when you, that's I think the real meaning when they say, you know, you save one life, you save the world, right? So, I think of the 10 stories, there's probably, it could be a million people alive mm -hmm. today because of that, which then gets to the point you were making about, you know, for example, Israel and the rebirth and the renaissance of, of, of Israel. And then you think about the number of Jews in the world and then how many of them actually trace their, the fact that they're alive to the fact that somebody decided to do what somebody like Susan Mendes did right. and risk their career, risk their life. And you, you make the point that it's, it's not just goodness, but it's goodness plus courage. For right. sure. So, so you, those are the two elements. Yeah. Uh, but that courage piece, it's been, is really, it's very, very difficult under these circumstances. Yes, and I think we have to be, we have to be um, careful in how we judge people at the time. Because again, right. it also depended on where 
you were, in the exhibit, in the Auschwitz exhibit here, they point out in Holland, if you were captured trying to help somebody, you know, they put you in jail. In Poland, they killed you and your family. Right. So that's, that's a real tough, I mean, I wouldn't make that decision. I mean, that's a very, 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 very courageous decision. There was a woman I tell the story about who went in and out of the Warsaw Ghetto, saved 2,500 Jewish children and infants. At any point in time, she could have been killed and her elderly mother she had would have been, would have been executed. But, so it really depended where you were in Europe. I mean, there's a Polish family that I think was just sanctified by the Catholic yeah. Church, right? And they, they, they were all executed for trying to save, save Jews. But, um, but it, it also, um, so that, that, you know, the level of courage, but yes, you needed to be quite courageous and you needed to have a very strong moral compass, I think, and you needed to have a lot of confidence that you could actually make a difference. More from our Reagan Forum with Richard Horowitz after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Richard Horowitz. I want to underscore the Susan Mendes quote that you yourself uttered, which is, I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God. Very, very, very powerful. Uh, I have a, so another, maybe, maybe audience participation, or, or maybe we'll just let Richard um, address it, but what do Denmark, Bulgaria, Finland, and Albania have in common? Kind of an interesting collection. Albania, uh, of course, a Muslim country, but Denmark, Bulgaria, Finland, and Albania. So Richard, what do they have in common? What they have in common is that they rescued between 95 and 100% of the Jews in, that live there. The most famous story is obviously um, Denmark. Um, in fact, you know, rescue again is like super undercovered for a variety of reasons. So other than Wallenberg and Schindler, most people don't know rescue. So some people know the story of Denmark, where in sort of this amateur flotilla, um, they were tipped off, the Danes were tipped off by, um, by actually a member of the Nazi party who was not an anti-Semite. And over the course of several weeks, they, they took the entire population uh, across the Straits to Sweden and to safety. Um, there, that was, there were 7,200 Jews and 800 um, uh, spout, people, children and spouses of Jews. One of the Jews was actually Nils Bohr. If you've seen Oppenheimer, he became part of the Manhattan Project. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the Danes from the beginning of the occupation said, we will not have any... Um, you know, discrimination against our Jews. And there's this apocryphal story that the king of Denmark wore a Star of David, but it's not true because the Danes would not even allow the Star of David to be worn. And the Wehrmacht and the Navy and even the SS advised against trying to round up the Danish Jews because they knew the entire country was so united against this and, and so strongly in favor of protecting the Jews that it would cause almost, you know, an up uprising. And it ended up, Hitler himself ordered the the, uh, the, up, the, the, the deportation, and of course it didn't work. So 
And then, by the way, like, just as an amazing coda, there were about 500 Jews that, that didn't get out. And they were sent to Theresienstadt. And the Danish government every week called to check on them. How are the Jews? They sent them food. They sent them medicine. They sent them clothing. They made the Red Cross inspect. And other than 50 who died of disease, they all survived. Mm -hmm. And they came back in buses with the Red Cross. And then when the Danish Jews all came home, it was remarkable, they found that the neighbors had watered their plants, they'd cared for their dogs and cats, they had maintained their businesses and they welcomed them back, which was not true in a lot of places in Europe where people took advantage and took people's homes and businesses, et cetera. Albania is a totally different story. By the way, if you see downstairs the Vansi conference, the Nazis made a list of every country in Europe, whether they occupied it or not. They have Albania, 200 Jews. It's the only country, it is, it is a majority Muslim country, it was a country where there were all three monotheistic religions lived together for generations, like, sorry, centuries, um, uh, going back to the late Roman Empire. Uh, Jews and Christians were there together. And it's a majority Muslim country, but they, they, have, um, they have a code of honor called Besa, which is like a hospitality. And they would rather die than have a guest in their home or their country uh, be you know, captured. And so when the FDR's ambassador, who was Jewish actually, to Albania got there, he wired back, and it was covered in the Jewish Telegraph. I saw the wire. He said, this is the only country in Europe with no religious bigotry at all. So I think the lesson though, the really important lesson of the places you mentioned, and then towns like Le Chambon, which I write about, which was a Protestant town in France, and which is in the exhibit as well, where you had almost a 100% success rate, is that when the entire community comes together and says, these are not our values, right? And when you, and this is why I think like the anti-bullying campaign is so important, even though people make fun of it, is this all starts with children. And, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, the Nazis, but when you say like, we don't, you see somebody, you see a, something hateful happening, or you see, you know, bullying, or you see, and, and if more than half of the community stands up, is this is not who we are, you could stand up even to the Nazis, right? I mean, the it's Nazis tremendous, back down. Tremendous strength in, in people standing up, in, in at least in numbers, in, yeah. even if they're modest numbers. And, and in Denmark, for example, sorry, not in, in Holland, there was a, I quote the guy in the book, one of these rescuers who was one of these, you know, he said, we're the tip of the spear. Mm -hmm. But the reason why we were successful was because in a place like Holland, which was not great, but much better than a lot of other places, he said, there were, you know, people would look the other way. So if you were, it was generally the further east you went, the worse it got. But if you were in a place where most people were quietly sympathetic, mm -hmm. then people had a much higher likelihood of surviving because the biggest risk to any rescue was denunciation. Mm -hmm. And so that meant, like the guy I mentioned, the maintenance man who turned in the white rose. Right. So when, the, when everyone sort of believes this is the right thing to do, even if they're, they're again, we can't, not all of us are going to be somebody who's going to risk their life or their children's life, but everybody can sort of, you know, do something, do something or enable right. or look the other way. So you mentioned our Auschwitz exhibit. It's one of the points that we make when we draw attention to it is this is what happens when people turn a blind eye to hate. Yes. Right. Letting that hate fester and then grow. And then you're making an additional point, which is when people resist in some way and band together, even if it's even if it's modest, it can have a huge hugely positive impact. Yeah, so the other thing that comes out, out of the, I think the 
exhibit and just general, when you learn about the Holocaust, is it didn't happen in one right. day. It happened over a long period of time. And you can say, people say, when did it, you know, a lot of people say, well, it was the Evian Conference when every country in the world, except for the Philippines, which was, and, 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 and the Dominican Republic, said we won't take in any Jews. And Hitler, the Nazis said, oh, well, instead of persecuting them or trying to drive them out, maybe we just kill them. Like, that was, but a lot of people draw a moment very early on when the Nazis declared a boycott of Jewish businesses. And they basically put a thug in front of a different businesses. And many people abided by this and did not shop there, whether they, many of them seek, you know, might have agreed with it, but a lot of people were intimidated. And there were people who defied it and they went in and nothing really happened to them. And a lot of people say that, that was very emboldening to the Nazis. And so the earlier you stand up to this kind of thing, the, the easier it is to stop it. Right. They, 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 the Nazis literally talked about the boycott. They said they couldn't believe the success that it had. Right. So for those who haven't seen it yet, through January 28th, this incredibly powerful Auschwitz ex special exhibit will be here. Uh, 700 artifacts, and uh, Richard had an opportunity to go through it earlier, and it was it's very, very powerful. We happen to have been born in the same year. Don't in, say what it was. In, we won't say what it is. Uh, uh, in that time frame, we've had genocides in Cambodia. There had just been a genocide in Bangladesh, in both cases about two million people killed. Uh, post uh, you, the disintegration of Yugoslavia, there, were, there was genocide. Uh, there were genocides in Iraq, or in Rwanda, uh, the Rohingya in Myanmar. There's an active genocide in China against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang right now. So Richard, could another Holocaust happen again? Well, it depends how you define a Holocaust because um, I think there was something unique about the Shoah in its sort of mechanization and industrial scale and what drove it. But if you talk about genocide and you say never again, you point out it's going on right now. There were 500,000 people killed in Syria. 500,000 people in the last, you know, not even, in, I mean, you don't have to think about our lifetime. I mean, that was in- Last the, decade. Yes. Um, and, the, and we know about it. I mean, it's on social media every day. Um, and so, so yeah, I think it, 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 there've been 40 genocides since World War II. So to say never again- 40 genocides yeah. since World War II. So I think, I think um, yes, it could happen again. I think it could happen before October 7th, people said to me, do I think there could be a Holocaust here? And I would say no. Now I'm not so sure. I definitely think there like, could be, a, you know, there's a certain country that would love to drop a bomb and kill six million Jews in Israel, um, for sure. Uh, it's, it's very troubling. Um, do I think the world has evolved since the, what happened with the Nazis? Yes. Um, and, uh, but I do think there's a lot of dangerous things that are out there right now, and there's a lot of hatred, and there's a lot of ability to, you know, platform. You know, every time there's a new media, it always, you know, like Hitler was a creature of the radio, right? And, 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 and um, you know, I think we have to be very, very vigilant, and I think also, like, who we admire and what values we choose to have as a society are very important. And I'm worried about sort of the, um, you know, sort of 
liberal democratic values, which have always been a bulwark against this, right? I mean, being eroded and being challenged by actually mostly in the liberal democratic countries themselves, which I think is, you know, a little, you know, is, 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 is counterintuitive. Um, so, so it's, it is, it is, it's troubling. Um, but I think, you know, again, there's a lot we can do. And, you know, another lesson from the book is that a lot of it starts in kind of early childhood again. And so I think education is really, really important for this. We can come back to that in a moment, but we are going to open it up to questions if there are any. If not, Richard and I can certainly go on at length. But if you have a question, please raise your hand. Please wait for the microphone. Identify who you are and what your affiliation is and ask away. And questions end with question marks, please. So who would like to go first? Now, there is one audience member I know is not shy about asking questions, and I'm looking at her, so I'm going to invite her. But she, uh, okay, okay. Anybody else? Well, while, while people are thinking about questions, um, tell us about Richard, about Ronald Reagan, and your, your views of him, and uh, maybe, you know, as you and I have discussed privately, kind of the, the, why are we having here an exhibit on Auschwitz? What, what does your speaking at the, at the Reagan Library mean to you, and why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I, I, Ronald Reagan actually had a, spoke a lot, and actually had a profound, was profoundly impacted by the Holocaust. I mean, there's so much about Reagan, obviously, he's a major, uh, you know, he's probably the most consequential president of the second half of the 20th century. And so, and I think, probably he and Gorbachev are the most consequential world figures, so, you know, it's, it's a part of his legacy. Um, but, but he did, he was affected by it. And, um, you know, it's not something that uh, people really focus on when they talk about him, but he, first of all, as you may know, as you probably know, you know, he was, um, uh, from the beginning, extremely, um, uh, turned off and, and against discrimination and prejudice of any kind. So hey, you told me yeah. he resigned from a specific country club. He because did. It La did. Is it Lakeside? Is the LA? It didn't, it didn't accept Jews. Yes. So there was a restricted club that didn't allow Jews. And when he was an actor, he resigned from it. When he was a high school football player, they were traveling around. One of his classmates was, teammates was an African-American. They wouldn't allow him to stay yeah, in, the, in college. And, and in college. Was and he Eureka. stayed in his He stayed college. with his parents. The African-American fellow player stayed with his parents and, and, and Ronald Reagan because the hotels didn't right. accept African-Americans. So, so Reagan had this, and then he was very, very, uh, he was in, during World War II, he was part of a Hollywood unit um, that, that made you know, films. But he was shown footage from the, from the camps right Dachau. afterwards. Uh, yeah. So from his, Dachau. His unit got access to this footage, which profoundly affected him. Yeah, so much so that he would show it to his children, actually. And um, in 1981, um, he gave, a, I, I found a, a speech he had given at a Holocaust Remembrance Day where Elie Wiesel was there. And he talked about it and he said, you know, Holocaust denial is terrible. And anybody who's seen this footage, like I have, knows that that is a, like a sin against humanity. I mean, he just went on and on about how important that was. And then he gave a number of speeches about the Holocaust. And I actually, you know, found it, uh, his remarks um, in the first term, he spoke to a group of survivors and he actually talked about rescuers. Um, and he, he talked about the Danes and he talked about um, some of the people in my book. And, and he was, he remarked, which is why I think it's like very appropriate, you know, that, that, which is true, that almost every, I've read probably thousands of rescue stories and the language that these people use to describe their, what they did is almost universal. It's, I didn't do anything special. 
I just did what any decent person would do. I just did the right thing, which is, of course, you know, like, you know, that probably shouldn't be surprising they felt that way, but, but he was very moved by that, and he, he talked about that in the speech, and again, he dedicated, when he dedicated the, when he laid the foundation stone of the museum, he said, The Holocaust Memorial the Hol Museum in he, Washington, he, D.C. in 1988. An and he gave an address, and he also said to the, he said that I just, that the United States has been a haven for persecuted people, and it was a haven for Jews after the Holocaust, and so was Israel. And he said, we will never allow either place to be, you know, not a place of haven for, for Jews. And he was incredible on this issue, um, but he also did feel, and he talked about, he was very worried about Holocaust denial. He also, when he received the unsolicited um, endorsement of the KKK, he denounced it and said that, that, that um, there is no place, not only in the Republican Party, but in the United States of America for that kind of hate, and he rejected the endorsement, which was, you know, maybe a contrast to other people. So, um, so I think actually, both the fact that he was very interested in, uh, in um, uh, and he was himself, you know, he talked about being a lifeguard his whole life, mm -hmm. and he was someone who viewed himself, I think, as a rescuer. And I think after he was, the assassination attempt, if you read his diaries and he talked about, you know, he actually wanted to, he literally wanted to rid the world of mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. And I think he was a person who was completely misunderstood, not only by the left wing, but by the right wing at the time. I mean, he was really a very unique individual, with a very specific vision, and, and somebody who really believed in the decency and talked about it openly of, of the, and the ideals of, and it's, it's interesting because he, he gave a speech, the, one of the speeches he gave, he talked about George Washington's famous letter to the synagogue in Newport, which right. is actually the foundation of religious freedom in the United States, and he said, we have these ideals. And then the next sentence he said is, we are not a country without flaws. Like we, ha do, which, is, which is true. I mean, we, slavery had many yeah, things that were terrible. But he said, we hold these ideals aspirationally and we try to achieve them. And that's what unites Americans. This is like a, something that you would never hear somebody say today, right? And I mean, it's just very idealistic. And, and I think he, so I think the, uh, the issue of keeping the memory alive was very important to him. He talked about it in the films, as did Eisenhower. Um, he, he was very interested in, in rescue. Um, and he was very interested in decency, and he talked about that. And he was also very interested in you know, um, helping people that were persecuted, and not just Jews. But I mean, in the, the, the examples yeah, the I'm Jewish giving. Jewish refuseniks, the past. Yeah, that hospitals. was another thing. So, so that was, I think that was very interesting. Um, I, I, got the, I got to know George Schultz a little bit at the end of his life, and he told me the story that you know, Reagan, a lot of people know he was very personally affected by certain things, including the hostages and also the Refuseniks, mm -hmm. and the Pentecostal Christians that were holed up in the embassy, in, in the US embassy, they, they couldn't leave um, because of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. And he, all of the meetings that they would have, Schultz told me, he was sort of instructed at the beginning of the meeting, and it was almost in the beginning, you know, like a perfunctory thing, like, we object to your treatment of the Refuseniks and to the Pentecostal Christians, right? And, but, this focus that Reagan had on, on human rights and universal freedom really made a difference. And Schultz told me that, because then you had Gorbachev come in and there was sort of this pressure, and he said the Cold War to him, he knew it was over the day he said, made this comment that Reagan had instructed, and Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister, his counterpart, said to him, 
okay, he said, we're going to let the Refuseniks go, but we're doing it not because of you're telling us to do it. We're doing it because it's the right thing for our country and it's the right thing to do. And so they, you know, he had sort of, his moral leadership, I think, had a huge effect. And he's also, you know, which I think is also really important, is going back to how do you stop genocide? How do you stop, you know, there, there is this tendency now to not call out things for what they were. And so, you know, Netan Sharansky, or as he was known at the time, Anatoly Sharansky, told me he was in prison for, I think, 12 years, four years in solitary confinement. Told me he played chess with himself in his head, never lost a game. <laughs> um, but he said when Reagan gave the famous speech where he called, he called uh, the Soviet Union an evil empire, and people here went crazy. They said he's a warmonger. And so the Soviets had this propaganda newspaper everyone remembers called Pravda. And they wrote up an article that said something like, you know, insane warmonger president Ronald Reagan called us an evil empire. And you were allowed to read Pravda in the prisons. And the Refuseniks and other dissidents read this. And Sharansky talked about how he said, finally, somebody stood up for us. Finally, there is a world leader that understands what the Soviet Union is, understands our plight, and sticks up for us. And he said that gave them the inspiration and the courage and the sort of stamina to keep going. And yes, it took a number of years before they were free, but you know, it's, you, know, you, you talk about you know, just sort of Reagan was, the, I mean, he was very unique in, in what he said. And he was very adamant and very outspoken about universal freedom and what the American, what the United States stands for. And I think he would, um, I think he had a connection to these people because he talked about it. I know he did. Yeah. Um, and, he had, and he had a real connection to making sure the Holocaust never happened again. So I think it's very appropriate that you have the exhibit, and I'm very honored to be here to, 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 to speak about it uh, at, at the library. Excellent. I have a follow-up, but we're going to go to the front row, and we have, we have a question. So name and affiliation. Okay. Uh, Phyllis Gorby. I'm with, should I say, I'm with the Ronald Reagan Institute Leadership Council, and I am a donor. I love Love, love, love this place. It's like my home away from home. Um, but that being said, um, it's a, the conversation that could go on for a very long time, of course, is what's happening in the universities and this, this um, tremendous outpouring of anti-Semitism, which has been really brewing for a long time. Uh, but after October 7th, it just exploded. And it seems that there is something that is funding it. There is some, you know, organizations that, I mean, they were ready to go. And um, so I'm just wondering what you think might, um, aside from the fact just plain old anti-Semitism and the fact that you've got Marxist professors and everything else that's wrong in universities, but the but this explosion and all of these protests, um, uh, it it just seems like it was almost pre-planned. My well, opinion. Um, it was well. It, it, if you're suggesting that there's like dark money behind things like Students for Justice, for I think that's pretty well known, um, and that it's an organized movement, but. I do think the bigger issue is the what you were saying before, which is, you know, kids are always have crazy 
political ideals, but the professors in a lot of these institutions, you know, but I think this has been very eye-opening to a lot of people because if, if you are so morally bad, so, so people have seen the anti-Semitism of the right come out recently in the last few years and normalized, and then you're now seeing, because again, I remember in high school, my history teacher putting on the board, you know, communism and fascism and all the things that they agreed on. And the only thing they didn't agree on was private property, but one of the main tenets of both was anti-Semitism. So the whole playbook of, oh, Israel is Nazis, Israel's an apartheid, it comes directly out of the Soviet playbook. They had an entire, this was part of their uh, strategy for dominating the Middle East. And it, that's what has been, you know, they literally parrot the, 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 without realizing it, on the university campuses, a lot of the Soviet propaganda. But um, I think for a lot of people, certainly for, for the Jewish community on these campuses, the reaction, like scales fell from people's eyes because they feel so betrayed by the fact that people who they thought they were like sort of, you know, in solidarity with have turned on them. So as I've been speaking to different audiences, I mean, I've heard stories over and over of people that went from being sort of, you know, ardent, um, you know, extreme progressives to being like ardent Zionists in hours after this. Because if you are so morally bankrupt that within hours you are out there defending, which people were, the murder of babies, right? The, like, the torture of women, the kidnapping of Holocaust survivors. If you're making a meme of a, ha a Hamas paraglider, you know, that's shock, shocks the conscience. I, I will say, like, it's a longer conversation, but I think that, that this was a, will end up, could end up being a catastrophic failure of the highest proportions for Iran and the people behind it because they did a number of things. One thing is they unified Israel, which was coming apart at the seams in three hours. But they also unmasked the very hard left in the United States and in Western Europe. And to make you, maybe, I'm, I'm in a little bit of an optimist, in, 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 which is why I wrote a book about rescuers <laughs> who are one out of 20,000. And I will say that if you look at the polls in the United States, and I hear also talking to people in Europe, not just elites now, but average people on the street in Europe in the last few weeks, there is a decided shift towards, um, towards uh, being you know, pro, not just pro-Israel, but pro the values that we're talking about. And the same way the Ukraine war, I think, sort of, you know, totally re-energized NATO. Um, you, you are definitely seeing that. So I'm not so sure that this isn't just, part of it is this, these are very loud voices in the media. And um, there's not, and, and on campus and in elite institutions. But, um, and they are very loud. I mean, I'm in New York. They, like, the next day there was a crazy protest in Times Square where people, again, literally were defending the un indefensible. And I think ultimately that, when people see that, like, you, you know, that it's so obvious for what it is that it, that it I think, is, is going to backfire. They're revising history as they go along. We have oh, a wait. second front row question. Yeah, th thank you very much, Richard. Is this on? Yes. Uh, what, what I'm worried about is something that you said earlier about, the, about social media. 
while it may be true that the polls are favoring the, if not elimination, certainly the diminution of the anti-Jewish of, of anti action, we're doing precious little here. And this country, I'm fearful, is finding itself in a place where the social media is allowing all of the evil, the people who really are of the, if, if, not, if, if not Nazi, something akin to it. You mentioned Russia and Iran, and you didn't mention North Korea, but there, there's lots of players out there. And we've got plenty of them right here in the United States, and social media is giving them a platform. And that's my question is about how can you be so confident that we're going to turn the tide when, in fact, it didn't turn in World War II early enough? Yeah, I mean, it, it took Pearl Harbor because even though people were sympathetic to the British cause, until Pearl Harbor, 97% of the population of the United States did not want to intervene militarily. So it took an actual attack on us for us to do that. I mean... Social media is a real problem because it's, everyone has a platform and the loudest, and it, it also has an internal effect where the you know, negative emotion and hatred is what sells. I, I mean, without getting, I personally think they should amend the, I mean, there's some things about the Telecommunications Act and the way that we're structured right now that are actually giving the social media platforms protection to avoid this issue that publishers don't have. If you said the same thing in the New York Times, they'd be sued. Um, so I am more, in some ways, more worried about what's going to go on in the U.S. than in the Middle East, because I know in the Middle East that despite what you read and you hear them say, the major players in the region, the Arabs, want peace with Israel, and their real issue is Iran, and this is a lot of theater that goes on, and they don't like Hamas either. But here, you ha do have a mix of very dangerous people. You have a, some people who are funded from overseas, and then you've got a whole army of what Lenin used to call useful idiots. Right, and, and so I think the best you can do though is, again, who, I think who we value as a society is really important. And I think you know, the question is, do we living through now is our, my degree is in like ancient history, so I always think about Rome and where are we on that spectrum and are we in a decadent society? And part of that is who do you value, right? And so you know, we don't value like you know, um, people like this enough. We don't celebrate them. And they still exist. I just, uh, a few weeks ago, I had an amazing experience. I was seated at a dinner next to the, if anyone's seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. Um, this man saved 1,600 people. There was a genocide. One million Rwandans died during all of, most of our lifetimes. We could have stopped it with a handful of soldiers. We didn't. But when I talked to him, he was exactly like someone, because I've never spoken to a rescuer, because they're all no longer, you know, I've, you've seen test, I've seen their testimony, but it was exactly like the same person in my book. You know, there are stories that are going to come out of Israel of people doing this, but we don't, we don't focus on that. It's like after the war, the reason why, there were a lot of reasons why people didn't focus on the rescuers, but people are really interested in the evil. And they were interested in why people went along with it, which is why you had things like the Milgram experiments at Yale or the Stanford prison experiments. And you had very little study of altruism and why people do, do, do the right thing. And I think like, it's very important to tell, to tell positive stories. And yeah, the social media is an avalanche. And we just have to do everything we can to 
to combat that, but I think it starts again with education. And so I think these issues about like what you teach in schools and the values you teach, every one of the, we didn't really get into like what made a rescuer, and there were a lot of things, but the single we most- We will now. Okay. Let's do it now. Let's do it now before <laughs> we run out of time. Yeah. Um, so the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, why did that matter? Or what was its impact? Well, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan saved more Jews than anything else in, in Europe. Um, so in the, story, in the book, I try to talk about a little bit about what happened, and, and also the stories I selected are, give you a, are meant to give a spectrum of the types of people that did this geographically, et cetera. So you know, there were certain thing, common themes. There was very little systematic study done of rescue. There was a Freudian study done where they found the only thing that sort of correlated was how you were disciplined by your parents, which is not a very satisfying answer. Um, but there's some truth to it in the sense that like early childhood is very important. So there were things that were very important. I mean, if you were in an international profession, like being a diplomat, you were that put you in contact. International with business. If you're an athlete, you were more likely to do that. Yeah, athletes. I mean, I have one story about a guy who won the Tour de France and saved 700 Jews. Was one of the most famous athletes in Italy. Um, people in creative professions. There's a story about a circus uh, rescuing a circus. Um, people who, who, um, uh, pretty much everybody had some ideal usually religion, but it could have been liberal democracy or po something political that they felt was bigger than themselves. So more often than not, that was religion. And the, with religion, religion's complicated. It, by the way, intel intellectual achievement had no correlation. Everybody at the Vansi conference had either a PhD or a law degree. Some people had more than one PhD. Right, the, so the, pe the people who came up with the idea of the, ex exterminating. Well, the execution of the Vansi conference is where they made the, they, uh, they made the decision to implement the final solution and murder the Jews. It was done in a villa outside of Berlin. Everybody had either a PhD or a law degree. Highly educated people. Right. You've, in fact, been asked if, if you were a Jew in Poland or some other Nazi-occupied place and you can only knock on one door of somebody who might save you, whether it was an academic, a lawyer, a judge, an intellectual, or a priest, or a doctor, the answer that you would give is, is for sure the priest, but let me give you two caveats. <laughs> the first is people that were into religion for external shows of piety right. to show how you know, morally superior they were. They really actually often went even in the other direction. Mm -hmm. But it was the people that really internalized teachings like the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, which was above the Protestant temple. They called it a temple in the town of Le Chambon. Mm -hmm. Those were the people who really um, viewed their sort of like common humanity and the, the importance of helping others. Um, and, and that was like, you know, people really believed in the teachings and believed in something higher than themselves. And the other little caveat I would say, which is I think the almost universal thing, and often where somebody got their religious belief from, was that almost every rescuer had in their early childhood at least one role model, sometimes two, often the parents, but not always, who taught them, did a couple things. One is taught them that exposed them to the other and told them you have to, you know, Irena Sendler, the woman who saved 2,500 Jews, her father was a doctor, died when she was eight. Um, he treated poor Jews and they got, he got typhus from them. And he said to her, if you see someone drowning, you have to save them. And she talked about this. She lived to be 90 her whole life. And that was why she did what she did. And the other thing is that 
children that grow up in a loving household. So I would ask you, like, did, did the priest have this, right? If you grow up in a loving household where your interests are valued and where you are valued as a person, which goes to that punishment issue, that was really important also because what it did is it gives people self-confidence and a moral compass and the ability to, to believe that they can make a difference because you have to think to be a rescuer, you're in an environment where everybody around you is doing something totally different. They're either collaborating or they're just standing by and, or they're terrified to do anything. And you have to take action. You have to A, believe the, my moral compass is correct and they're wrong and I can actually do something and make a difference here, right? I can, I can actually affect rescue. And that comes from sort of, early, all of that comes from early childhood and how you're exposed then. But of your choices, for sure I would choose the priest because again, it was, as they said about the people in Le Chambon, one of the Jewish children who was rescued there said, you know, these were people that, they may not have read the newspaper every day, but they read the Bible. We are almost out of time. I think we could go for much longer. In fact, in your introduction to your book, you say you had enough material to write at least one other book about these yes. rescuers. Right. The 10 rescuers and the, the stories of these 10 rescuers, they're, they're, it's, it's riveting. Uh, and I, I strongly encourage everyone to read it. Um, but I do want to close with the way you exactly close your book uh, at the, in the, the, ver the very last two sentences. And, and, and these are Richard's words. If you take your inspiration from the rescuers and bring kindness and compassion and courage with you, you will make the world a better place. And then you too will walk in the footsteps of the righteous. So with that, let's thank Richard for a remarkable book. Copies of In the Garden of the Righteous can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, including all programming associated with our Auschwitz exhibit, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.